Glad you guys are here tonight. We have been studying the life of David, and I've said previously we're looking at the life of David to understand who God is and how he relates to his people in the time of David. Uh, the Bible teaches us that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And sometimes it's, it's nice to look at, at stories that we may not be that familiar with because the whole Bible speaks to us about who God is. And sometimes the little-known stories are some of the best and most powerful stories. Tonight, um, we're going to look at one of those little-known stories. Now, some of you all know that I've been very excited about this Muscle Shoals documentary. I keep telling people that it's going to show at the Belcourt, and then now twice I think I've told people about it, and they couldn't go um, again Sunday night. It is actually going to happen on Friday night. If you don't know what Muscle Shoals is, you might know that Leonard Skinner song. If you, if you weren't a Leonard Skinner fan growing up like I was, I was a huge Leonard Skinner fan. I'll just tell you that. I even bought a PV amp because of Leonard Skinner, you know, and if some of you know how painful that is. Well, um, they've got that line in that song, Sweet Home Alabama, do you remember? And Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers. Do you ever wonder who the Swampers were? You know now who the Swampers were. But, you know, I wonder how many times you sang that song, you know, on Rock Band or Guitar Hero or karaoke or just in your car and didn't know who the Swampers were. The Swampers were these four, basic four studio musicians that worked out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And this is one of those stories that you may not know, but it's one of these great stories that's a little known story. You know um, Aretha Franklin and you know some of her classic music, Respect and Chain of Fools and all these great songs, classic songs in sort of our kind of American experience, but you may not know that Aretha actually for five years was on, I think on Columbia, and made these jazz records that didn't really go anywhere. And eventually she signed with Atlantic, and Jerry Wexler um, was kind of the co-president of, of Atlantic, and he called down to Memphis to a place called Stax. If you know anything about the history of American music, you might have heard of Stax records. They called down there to say, hey, we want to, the people that played on this um, staple singer song, I'll Take You There. Maybe you know that old song. You probably know it if, if you don't know the name. And, and uh, he was like, well, it wasn't actually recorded here in Memphis. It was recorded at a place called Muscle Shoals, Alabama. So they decide they need to go to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now, the way you get to Muscle Shoals, you actually fly into Nashville. You drive south on I-65 to Pulaski. You know where Pulaski is? Pulaski is where the Ku Klux Klan was founded. And then you take back roads to get to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And it was a fascinating time because you imagine, you know, well, it was just fascinating. Aretha Franklin comes here, goes down there. The first time she sits down at a piano and explains to these studio musicians what she wants to sound like. This is how I sing in church. This is how they make me sing on my records. I don't want to sound like that. I want to do this. They had a film crew running the first time she sits down at the piano at Muscle Shoals, Alabama. They record this song, I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Loved You. You know that song? Don't, 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 don't. You probably know that song. If you don't, you should go get on Spotify and listen to it. It's an amazing song. Or I'll play it for you afterwards. Anyway, but here's the fascinating thing, right? It's one of the biggest sessions they're ever going to do at Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Aretha Franklin, amazing. They record this song, except the trumpet player was flirting with Aretha. And uh, you watch this movie, and you'll see this great scene where the studio owner, this guy Rick Hall, who's kind of a nutcase, really, um, but such a character. That's why it's such a great documentary. 
film, he, uh, he says, you know, that basically like the, the trumpet player starts flirting with Aretha, and so then he decides to drink a whole lot of vodka and go over to the hotel and see if he can make things better, which doesn't happen. Long and short of it is, the studio owner ends up fighting with Aretha Franklin's husband, tries to throw him off the fourth floor balcony window, or out of the, out, off the fourth floor of the balcony there at the hotel, and Aretha and all her people, her whole entourage, they'd leave, go back to New York City. Done. We're never working at that place again. And then they play back that song. And they're like, oh, we've got to have that, but we are not going back to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. So you know what they do? They hire the Swampers, the four studio musicians. They fly them up to New York, and they make some records like Respect, Chain of Fools. All these, some of the greatest songs ever recorded. It's a little-known story. It's an awesome story. And I, I, I think so often some of the greatest stories are these little-known stories. When I told a friend of mine, some of you guys know Brian Habig. He used to be the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt. Um, he's spoken at conferences for us, and now he pastors a church in Greenville, South Carolina. And I remember years ago, the first time I was going to preach on the life of David, I told Brian, I'm going to preach on the life of David. What do you think are some of the must-do passages? Because after all, the life of David stretches across 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and Chronicles as well. So how do you decide what to leave out and what to do? And he, he says, well, man, Twit, you got to do Mephibosheth. got to do the story of Mephibosheth. And I will tell you, I will admit to you, here, on recording, on the podcast and everything, that even though I graduated from seminary, even though I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister, he said Mephibosheth, I was like, I think I kind of remember something about that name, but I don't remember that story. I don't remember that story. Matter of fact, the first time I tried to preach on the life of Mephibosheth, I found it difficult to even say his name 25, 30 times through the course of the night. But I will tell you that this story has become one of my favorite stories too. This is one of these passages that I just can't get over. There are times when King David really embodies what it means to have a king who graciously cares for his people. There are other times when David doesn't model that very well at all. You know, David was not a perfect guy, but there are times like this story where he really models what our true heavenly king is like. Again, he's not perfect. A couple chapters after the story is the whole Bathsheba story. And we'll cover that one after you get back from fall break. And that's an atrocious story about how he takes advantage of a woman. It's not about an affair at all. It's about the king doing what he wants. And it's a wretched story. But this story tonight is a beautiful story. A story about the hesed. That's a Hebrew word that means covenant love. Steadfast love, sometimes it's translated in your Bibles. Maybe you've run across that word. Hesed. What is the hesed of the king like? Let's look at this story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I have it on the, the scripture. One side is 2 Samuel 9 and the other side uh, is some stuff we're going to look at later. Okay, But 2 Samuel 9, that's where we're at. Start at verse 1. David asked. Now this is after David the king is now in his palace established. He says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Saul, you remember, was the king of Israel before David, and he was rejected because he did not obey the word of the Lord. And he tried to kill David, hunted him like an animal, and tried to kill him, but eventually he was killed. 
Saul's son, Jonathan, was David's dear friend. They had made a compact, a covenant together that they would love one another and care for one another. And Jonathan has also been killed. And David asks this question, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? In other words, any descendants of Saul to whom I can show kindness? That's that word, hesed, covenant love, steadfast love for Jonathan's sake. Verse 2, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before King David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba, your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. Excuse me. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. Let's pray together and then we'll get into the story. Lord, we do thank you for this little known but beautiful, powerful story. And we pray that we will understand the significance of the the hesed, God's kindness, that would invite one like Mephibosheth to eat at the king's table like a royal son forever. And may that touch our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this. I love this story. Now, to get into this story, I'm basically going to talk about it from a couple different angles. First, we're going to see who is Mephibosheth. And looking at him, we get a good picture of what the Bible means when it talks about who can be saved. And then we're going to basically look at what happens to him. And we're going to look at the beauty of salvation by grace, and particularly what, where we see grace in this passage. And then, my favorite part, we're going to look at the privileges that coming into a relationship by grace with God, our King, the privileges that that brings. And there are a number of those things that this passage speaks about. So first, let's look at a picture of who gets saved. Who is this guy, Mephibosheth? His name literally means a shameful thing. A shameful thing. You read this story, 
And you are to expect that if this guy is discovered, he is not going to be, he is not going to be a happy guy. His name means a shameful thing. And three times the passage goes out of its way to say that he is from the house of Saul. You see that? From the house of Saul. Um, that means, and if you're remembering the story and where we're at in the story of the life of David, he's the son, the grandson of the guy that tried to kill the rightful king. So he is from this family who tried to murder David. And not only that, he is a threat to David's kingdom even now. Even though David is on the throne, the fact that this guy is still alive is a threat to the stability of David's kingdom. Because if you were going to challenge the rightfulness of David's claim to the throne, the best way to do it would be to find an heir of the previous king and support him and build a coalition around him. Thus, in the ancient world, as in the medieval world, one of the best ways and the expected way that you would secure your kingdom when you came to the throne is you would seek out everybody from the former dynasty and have them all killed. Everybody expected it. Now, the Bible doesn't say that's a good thing and that's the way life should work, but that is the way life worked in this day and age. And so when you hear this story, if you are an Israelite at the time this story happens, you read this story, you're thinking, okay, I know why he's calling for Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth certainly believed when he gets brought to the palace that the deal is over. That's why when he doesn't get sentenced to death, he says to the king, why have you noticed a dead dog like me? He rightly understands that by all rights, he should be dead. And then he's described as being crippled in both feet. Now, the, the, the way that that happens is actually in 2 Samuel chapter 4. You don't have to look at it, but it's on the back. But I'll just summarize what happens. Basically, when Saul and Jonathan were killed and word got back to the palace that they're dead, chaos erupted. Why? Because they knew that now David was going to assume the throne. And so everybody that was loyal to Saul had to just get out of town as quick as they could. At this point, Mephibosheth is a little boy. His nurse picks him up. She's running to get out of the palace. She trips and falls and drops him, and he's crippled from that point on. So not only is he by rights dead because he is the heir to the house of Saul, not only is he somebody who's a threat to David's kingdom, he's also somebody who is broken and wounded through no fault of his own. So he is both a threat, a traitor, in a sense, to the rightful king, but he also is somebody who's been broken by the brokenness of the world, not particularly like his sin. And it's important that we see that because for a lot of people who grow up in church, they often think about how they're bad people, but they don't think about how they're wounded people. And the Bible actually teaches both things. And for you to have a right picture of, of who you are, you need to understand that, yes, you do bad things, but you also are somebody who's been affected by the brokenness in the world. 
And you don't need to try to sort of trace every bad thing you do to something that's happened to you. Both are true at the same time. Both are true at the same time. So this guy is a fugitive who fled when David became king, and he's been in hiding ever since. And he lives in the place called Lodabar. Lodabar literally means no pasture. And it's a very evocative name. Here it is. The heir to the once great house of Saul is living in hiding in the place of no pasture, the place of no rest. And I'm sure his life was no rest. I'm sure that he's grown up hearing stories because he's surrounded by people, I think we can expect, who were loyal to the house of Saul and thus were hiding him and protecting him. And people that probably are wishing and hoping that one day this kid could ascend to his rightful place as the king. And so I suspect that David wasn't real popular in that house. This kid has grown up in hiding. He's got royal blood in his veins, but he's hiding in a place called Lodabar, a place of no pasture. His name means a shameful thing, and he's crippled in both feet. And now he stands helpless before the king that his grandfather tried to kill. Now, if you don't see that as a vivid picture of what it means to stand before the king of all creation, then I think you've missed a big important storyline in the Bible. And I won't dwell on this, but you know, the passage itself encourages us to think not just of King David, but how King David represents the heavenly king of all creation. Why do I say that? Well, you, you, you see at the beginning here, he says in verse 1, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? And he uses that word hesed, which is a, a, a word in the Bible that is you know, usually used of God's steadfast love. But if you weren't sure whether that was being implied, look at verse 3. It's clarified anymore. Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness. David self-consciously is standing in the place of God. That is the understanding of the king in the Israelite understanding, that the king stands in the place of God. When the king shows kindness, he's showing God's kindness. When the king stands in judgment, he's standing in the place of God. That's the ideal understanding of the king. Now, like I say, there are times when David departs from that and kind of goes off on his own and does what he wants rather than following what God wants. But here, we see a picture of mankind standing before the heavenly king. And here's the thing that I want you to understand. Um, a great uh, religious thinker, John Calvin, said many, many years ago, that there are two things that's important for us to understand. One is the knowledge of God, and the other is the knowledge of man. In other words, well, and what, what he says in particular about these two things is that they're inextricably linked. That you can't really understand who man is apart from understanding who God is. In a lot of ways, our culture has tried to understand man apart from God. But if what the Bible says is true, that we were created in God's image, then leaving that part out of the equation will distort your understanding of even who you are. In other words, the Bible offers this 
contention that you can't understand who you are apart from how you relate to God. Now, I, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating when you think about, you could contrast, um, you know, sort of what the Bible's picture is with this quote from this guy, Herbert Maurer, the, Hobart Maurer. This is a fascinating quote. Um, he was a professor of psychology at Harvard, the former president of the American Psychological Association, and he caused quite a stir when in a magazine article, he talked about the idea of original sin. You know, this Christian idea of original sin, which for a lot of people was this old-fashioned, outdated notion that was really messing up people's self-image. And as a psychology professor, he was part of the folks that were saying that we need to get rid of that outmoded idea. And, um, and then near the end of his life, he wrote this. For several decades, we psychologists have looked at the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus. Do you know what the incubus is? I didn't. I had to look it up. An incubus is this mythical creature that crawls or climbs into the nursery window and eats children. So it's a strong word he's using here. <laughs> We've looked at the idea of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and declared our liberation from it as epic-making. But at length, we discovered that to be free in this sense, to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful is to also court the danger of becoming lost. For in becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free, we have cut off the very roots of our being, lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics, we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living mean? When he wrote this, as you might imagine, he got quite a lot of hate mail. And several months later, he killed himself. But do you understand what he's saying? We thought that if we could just get rid of the idea of sin as this old-fashioned notion, if we could just get rid of this negative idea that the Bible has of humankind, it would set us free. But he says we've been trying that for decades, and it hasn't helped. And not only has it not helped, it's made us not even sure who we are anymore. Because if you get rid of the idea of sin, you get rid of the idea of moral accountability, that means you disconnect from God and you leave him out of the equation of trying to understand who you are and you will become lost. Free, but cut off from the root of your identity if you are made in God's image. And all I would simply say this, you have to have an adequate diagnosis to be healed. And the Bible says that God is the great physician, not the great pharmacy. And so often I think we make our own diagnosis, you know, and we want to write the script and we ask God to fill it. But God's diagnosis is more cutting and more deep than ours. And the Bible asks us to consider whether we might be more like Mephibosheth than we think. That as we stand before the heavenly king, by all rights, we should be judged. But that isn't what happens, is it, in this story? What happens? Well, David initiates something very different. And now we look at this grace. Do you understand? David doesn't just send a, a message and say, hey, why don't you make your way to Jerusalem? No, David has him brought but the big question here is why? And do you see how it keeps 
saying, for Jonathan's sake, for Jonathan's sake. Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness for Jonathan's sake? In other words, Mephibosheth is safe because of David's love for another person, his father. And this is the idea that the Bible talks about when it talks about covenant love. The idea of Christianity is the idea that you can be loved because of God's love for his son. That what it means to trust in Christ is to say, rather than appearing before God on my own merits, I will put all of my hope in Christ. And I will let the relationship that God has with his son be the way I relate to God the Father. And the Bible says if you do that, then God smiles at you because he smiles at Christ. This is the picture of grace in the Bible, that you're safe because of God's love for another. God's love is a love for helpless enemies. And what does it bring? Jump down to this. I love, look at verse 7. He gets peace. He expects to hear a sentence of condemnation, of death. Instead, the king says to him, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness. Whenever the Bible says that word surely, that's swearing an oath. That's how in Hebrew you swear an oath. You say, surely I will do this. I swear to it. The king says, fear not. Don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness. I swear that I will do it. And he's called by name. He's called by name. I love it. I mean, what's fascinating is David isn't called by name in this section. It, like verse 9, the king summoned Ziba. The king did this. The king, verse 11, Ziba said to the king, but you know who gets named always by the king in this passage? Mephibosheth. And there's sort of literary art here. Do you understand? It's trying to show that the one whose name matters is the one whose name actually shouldn't matter. The king is, is barely named. But Mephibosheth, the helpless traitor who's crippled in both feet, gets named over and over and over again. God cares about your name. And the Bible speaks about his relationship with you as giving you a new name. Even a pet name that only he knows that one day he will whisper in your ear. That's the picture the Bible gives us of heaven and what's coming. Salvation means the king says, fear not, and he calls you by name. And then this, he gets a place at the table. He gets a place at the table. If you take anything away from tonight, here's the picture to take away. The heart of the gospel, the good news that the Bible celebrates over and over again in different ways and with different pictures. Here's the picture from this passage. The king's enemies are made to sit and eat at his royal table like royal sons and daughters forever. Not because they deserved it, but because of his love for another. He gets a place at the table, which seems crazy. It's one thing to not kill Mephibosheth. It's quite another thing to adopt him into his family 
and let him live in the palace and eat at the king's table. Do you see how crazy that is? It's absurd, really, that the king would invite the one threat to his kingdom into the palace, make him a child, bring him into his own family, and give him a place at his royal table forever. But that's what he does. Everybody there must have been thinking, what in the world is David doing? This is insane. To, to bring the threat to your kingdom into the palace and then sit at the table with him. Wow. And then he's given the inheritance that his family had lost. Now, this is fabulous. He's going to eat at the king's table. One thing you know about this world, if there was food to be had, the king had it, right? You know, you know this was not a culture. It's a kind of a desert culture. Food was difficult. But the king's table, you know you're going to eat, and you're going to eat well. So why then... Why then does Mephibosheth need Ziba's sons and servants to work the fields? Why does he even need all the fields that belong to King Saul? And why does he need them worked for him? He doesn't need to provide for his own food. He's going to eat at the king's table forever. And what you need to see here is this is a picture of the overabundance, the lavishing of grace. God doesn't just give us bread and water. He doesn't just give us the bare minimum. In the gospel, he gives us this overabundance beyond what you can even take in. Like trying to drink from a fire hydrant. That's the picture here. You get to eat at the king's table forever, Mephibosheth. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to give you 15 sons and 20 servants and all the king's lands, and they're going to work and, and provide all this stuff for you. But he doesn't need any of it. Right? Isn't that what we had in the call to worship in Isaiah 55? Come and eat the richest affair without money, without cost. But it certainly costs something. The king is going to pay the cost. And you're going to eat for free. And then he's going to give you stuff you don't even need. Overabundance. I love the way Isaac Watts, we sang you know, the, the Isaac Watts hymn about how sweet and awful and that's the old-fashioned sense of awful, like full of awe. There are some, you know, places where they've changed it to how sweet and awesome, but that's just really lame, so we don't sing it that way. I hope you all agree with me. Um, but there's one of, one of Isaac Watts' um, great hymns. Um, um, da, 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 um, I, I can't remember the first verse all of a sudden. Anyway, but it has this verse. Where he, meaning the king, displays his healing power, death and the curse are known no more. In him, that means in Christ, all the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Do you understand like this picture of lavish grace? You are in a better state trusting in Christ than you would have been if Adam and Eve had never sinned. The Bible teaches that. That 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. In him, or God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. If Adam had never sinned, the Bible says, you and I would have the righteousness of man. But we have the righteousness of God. Because of what Christ did. 
In the gospel, you get more than you lost at the fall. He's made like a royal son. Now, I was talking with some folks about this. The very apex of, of what the Bible says God came to give you is adoption. Adoption. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you ask most people who've been raised in church or most people that would say they're Christians, what does it mean to be a Christian? And you ask them to write down five or six things that are precious to them about being a Christian, I suspect that most of them would write being forgiven. But I also am pretty sure, because I've been doing this now for a long time, that almost none of them would write being an adopted child of God. Because we just don't think about adoption nearly as much as we think about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a wonderfully precious thing, okay? The Bible says that on Judgment Day, those that have to stand before God will be so overwhelmed by it that they will cry out to the mountains, uproot yourself and cover us so that we don't have to face the Almighty God. So to be made God's friend through forgiveness is no small thing. But the Bible says that actually Christ came to give you something even bigger. In Galatians chapter 4, it says that God sent him, when the time had fully come, God sent Christ, born of a woman, so that we might become sons of God. Paul says the ultimate reason that Jesus came was that you could be an adopted son of God. Now, ladies, you might be wondering, what does that mean for me? Because I'm a lady. Well, in Roman law, women could not be adopted. They couldn't be adopted with the same rights and privileges of sons. That isn't a good thing. It just was the case that when Paul uses that language, the Apostle Paul uses that language, he's invoking the Roman law to help them understand the security of the relationship they have because of what Jesus did. In, under Roman law, if you adopted somebody to be your heir, you could never disinherit them. You could disinherit your natural-born children. And it's actually the same in our culture today. We adopted a little girl from China um, about eight years ago, and we had to sign papers vowing that we would never disinherit her. But listen, if you have a baby, nobody comes to your house and makes you sign a paper like that, okay? I'm not under that same obligation with regard to my natural-born sons. <laughs> and so maybe some of you need to remember that. No, just eat. But so that's the, there's a security in God's love that's being spoken of. But there's also something else that's important to understand. Most of us think of our identity in terms of what we do, and, and when we do that, we end up distorting the Bible. And sometimes that sort of Western American kind of idea of we are what we can do and what we can produce is our value and is our worth. We even bring that to Christianity and reshape Christianity to fit that idea that's so deeply rooted in our hearts. And then what we do is we basically say, well, my worth isn't based on what I can produce or what I can you know, produce for some company, but my worth is based on what I can do for God. And the Bible says that's deeply flawed, that your worth is found in your relationship. That's why God didn't just create you to be his little worker bee, and he didn't just save you to serve him. He saved you to be in rich relationship with him, to eat at his table like a royal son 
forever and ever. Does that mean that you should not want to go out and tell people about it? Well, of course you should. But you weren't saved to serve. You were saved to be in the kind of rich relationship that he created you to be in in the first place. That's why they describe the, the relationship with God in the Garden of Eden as being one where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. Wasn't it a beautiful day today? Can you imagine being able to just sort of walk through Radnor Lake with God on a day like today? Yeah, walk on Radnor Lake. Yeah, if you're walking with God, maybe you could walk on Radnor Lake. But can you, can you even get your heart around that image? When you think of God, do you think of him as somebody that wants, that his greatest longing is to walk with you in the cool of the day and just hang out with you? That's what the Bible says. And, and we are always turning it into, well, what do I need to do for God to make sure he really still likes me? Do you see how twisted that is? If you forget the idea of adoption and you forget that what the Bible says is the apex of Christianity and what God has come to bring us is to be adopted as God's sons, if you forget that, if you lose that sense of your identity, again, you end up becoming lost. You end up becoming lost. You end up trying to find your own meaning for existence. And here's the thing. Only God can give you a reason for existence. If you try to do it, you're trying to take on a job that's so out of your league, you'll never be able to do it. You have to submit to what God made you for and what he says he created you for. It's a wonderful picture, right? And then there's one more thing, and I'll do this quick. But we also see a picture of how grace changes us. Look at the back page. I'll just I'll make this quick. But the story actually is really interesting. After this story, something else happens in the life of David. His son basically stages a coup against him, and David has to run away from his son. And once again, he's being pursued to death by someone. Eventually, Absalom, his son, dies, and David is able to come back. But while he was out on the run, Ziba came out to meet him in the desert with a bunch of food, okay? And David said, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba basically says, you know, well, he's back there at the palace. He's hoping, you know, that you're going to die and then he's going to get to be king one day. That's what Ziba says. So then Absalom dies. David comes back to the palace and we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 19. Look at verse 24. I just want to read this and make this last point here. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. This is now David's on his way back to the palace, and they go out to meet him as he's coming to the palace. Mephibosheth, it said, had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. So it seems like he's been in mourning. That's the symbol, that's the way you would dress or not dress if you were mourning. In verse 25, it says, when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, and you can hear the heartache in David's voice, why didn't you go with me? Mephibosheth. He said, my lord the king, since I your servant am lame, I said, I'll have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And furthermore, O king, he has slandered your servant, me, to you. My lord the king, you are like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. 
All my grandfather's descendants, this is still Ziba talking, or still Mephibosheth talking, verse 28. All my grandfather's descendants, means Saul's descendants, deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. That's the fields that belong to Saul. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him, Ziba, take everything. Now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. Do you see what's happened here? Mephibosheth's heart has turned towards the king for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. David isn't sure who to believe, whether he can believe Ziba or Mephibosheth, so he splits the fields. Because Ziba had said, look, he's hoping that you're going to die, and in the chaos, he's going to emerge as king. Mephibosheth says, no, that's not true. I was betrayed. David doesn't know who to believe. So he says, split the fields. But the last sentence, I think, tells us what really happened. Because Mephibosheth said, I don't care about the fields. All I care about is that my king is on the throne again. And do you understand how he got to that point? You might say, how could I ever long for God's kingdom so much so that even if what I have was taken away from me unrighteously, I would still say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How do you get to that point? And I think the answer is in this passage. Look at verse 27, verse 28. This is all that Mephibosheth has been able to think about ever since the day that David saved him and spared him. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord the king, but you gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. He just can't get over that. He never gets over that. He never thinks about himself apart from what happened to him and what the king did. He thinks about what he deserved and he thinks about what he received, and it melts his heart, and it molds his heart so that eventually his longing, his deepest desire is for the king's kingdom to be restored. You ever heard the story of General George Custer? Do you know he had a wife named Libby? Do you know this about George Custer? You know about General Custer. Well, there was one time when he hadn't seen her all summer long because he was out, you know, fighting in the wars. So he gathered all his men, made them march 55 hours just to show up and surprise his wife. It was a, it was a reckless thing to do. Two of his men died. Several of the horses died because of this forced march. Put his whole military career at risk. He was court-martialed. He was stripped of his rank and his pay for a year. The real reason that he fought the Battle of Little Bighorn was trying to get back in the good graces of his commanding officer, where he was killed. Do you know what's fascinating? All of that crazy stuff, just so he could show up and surprise his wife. It was insane, really. But you know what? We have her diary. And she wrote on that day that he showed up, these words. For me, there was one perfect day. One perfect day. 
No, not the day he died. But the day he showed his love in this insane, lavish way. What does it mean for you to have a king who loves you so much that he would invite you, you, to sit at his table and eat with him forever? Let's pray.